So great. Good morning, church. How are you guys doing? How was your week? Who, uh, who was at the women's worship event? Right? I heard, <laughs> and Brian Beachy. Um, wow. Well, I'm just going to meet with you after the service. The, um, I just want to say I heard fantastic things uh, about this, and uh, great job by Megan and the team on that. Very good. Very good. Um, so, here we are. We're praying for our pastor and some elders who are aware in Israel right now. Uh, the cat's away, so the mice have to collaborate and work together as a team. Uh, is what we're doing to pull this off. I'm so appreciative of the team that does that this whole thing operates, even when the senior pastor's um, away out of the country, is uh, an incredible testimony to that leadership. So, what, uh, what a crazy week. Monday was uh, my first Memorial Day. Yeah, such an interesting day. We don't have that day in Canada. We just have the Remembrance Day in um, November 11th, remembering those who served. Memorial Day is different, I discovered. Those who served and died, a little bit of a different thing. I found it, what a theologically intense holiday. What do I mean by that? I just mean that sometimes, I don't know if you've ever found this, the Christian good news can be a bit hard for people to understand the mechanics of it. We have freedom in Christ. We've been saved by the blood of Jesus. We've been set free by the blood of the Lamb. We've been purchased by Christ's sacrificial atonement on the cross. I remember when I was becoming a Christian, a little bit, I, you know, I had a question, how, did, how does that work exactly? Like, why does that, what's, what's the mechanism? It can be a bit weird talking about all the blood if you don't understand the whole backstory, you know, of, of, of God's people sacrificing a lamb to pay for sin, and then uh, God's people disobeying and getting enslaved in Egypt, and then Moses with the whole set my people free, and putting the blood of the lamb on their doors to cover the family uh, so that death passes over that home, the Passover, and then the fast forward to Jesus at, at Passover. He enters Jerusalem, and everyone's got a lamb for the sacrifice, but he is the lamb that's going to be the sacrifice, and his blood is going to be over our lives and pay for everyone's sin forever. One big lamb sacrifice to end all lamb sacrifices, literally. Uh, it's just a lot to explain. Uh, so if someone asks you, how is it that Jesus saves? Um, you can either give that whole overview of the Bible, uh, that I just gave, or you can say, well, it's like Memorial Day. Freedom comes at a price, and that price is paid in blood. Same for spiritual freedom. Spiritual freedom comes at a price, and that price is also paid in blood. Very special kind of blood. Based on my experience, um, what I saw on Monday, Americans really understand Memorial Day and connect with it deeply and emotionally and with gratitude. And uh, that's the same effect that the gospel's meant to have on us. But that's a whole other sermon. Uh, maybe I'll ask uh, Brad if I can preach on Memorial Day next year. Uh, it'd be very interesting to preach that all day. However, this morning, uh, we are talking about Paul's letter to the Christians establishing a newly minted church in Thessalonica. Or Thess- Thessalonica, Thessalonia, as you might have heard it, but Thessalonica in, uh, is, I think that's how they're pronouncing it right now, that city still exists. So we're going to have a look this morning at 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 1 to 10. Um, this is a really interesting book of the Bible. Now, by the way, this is going to be, I understand, this is my first summer at Copper Hills, and I understand um, every summer Brad's been going through a book of the Bible, 
in the summers. So this is going to have a bit of a Bible study vibe. You'll see, you'll see where I'm going to go with this. This is a really interesting book of the Bible. Um, it happens around 50 AD or so, 50 years after Jesus' death. And people are just starting to assemble in these things called churches. So the Apostle Paul, who wrote a big chunk of the Bible, uh, this is actually his first letter that he writes to a church. His first epistle that he writes to a church. The first one, okay? So we're going to go through verse 1 to 10, chapter 1, and then I'm going to make, one, uh, I'm gonna make uh, one big point and illustrate that one big point, if that's okay with you, okay? So, a bit of a Bible study vibe. First Thess- Thessalonians 1, verses 1 to 10. Uh, starts here. This letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Okay, stop there. It's a, uh, this struck me. This is a letter. Do you find this interesting? Uh, so, uh, the profound leadership in the early church uh, that was accomplished by writing. Writing a letter. Like, we don't, we didn't have the internet or anything like that. Um, this letter, it just struck me. Paul did a ton of hands-on church planting. Like, he went to these places and got churches established. Uh, it's a bit weird to think that his personal church planting effort uh, that happened in what is now modern day Turkey has mostly died out. But what has endured, what he has wrote down is what has endured even across the rise and fall of civilizations. And here we have it our today and it's blessing us. So, just keep that in mind. Maybe get a journal and write this stuff down. Because you never know after the apocalypse or the Terminator Judgment Day or whatever happens. When the EMPs have erased everything electronic, all they might find is your half-burned journal and trying to piece it together. And put me in there, uh, too, on this sermon. T-R-E-V-O-R-G-A-R-R-E-T-T. Okay, so let's get back to Scripture. We are writing to the church in Thessalonica, uh, to you who belong to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Okay, a little translation note here. I'm teaching out of the New Living Translation, which is terrific. But your Bible translation, whatever you're reading this morning, probably says, in God the Father. There, interesting note. Uh, For what it's worth, Bible scholars get super excited about that one preposition, in. Why? Because it treats God the Father and Jesus as one object. This 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 is massive in the scope of the Bible. You have to understand that Jesus' divinity is going to be debated uh, a huge matter of debate, and that debate is not going to land until 300 years later at the Council of Nicaea. Uh, yet here it is right here, Jesus and the Father described side by side in kind of equivalence. Okay, big word alert, this is called a high Christology, and it's one of the themes that goes all the way through First and Second Thessalonians. Okay, this idea of Jesus. So, I, uh, so this, this scripture here um, is going to be, is, uh, was really world-changing in terms of the theology of it. Okay. Uh, May God give you grace and peace. Order of those two things, probably important here in the scriptures. Grace is what is given, and that is what gives us peace. God's grace. Um, Let me give you the Trevor Slightly Loose translation of that. Uh, Don't worry. God has cut you all the slack you need. In fact, he's cut you infinite slack, so everything's going to be okay. Peace out. Out. Okay. Verse two. We always uh, we always thank God for all of you and pray for you constantly. Who do you pray for constantly? 
My daughter Sophie is back in Canada right now, going to not one, but two proms. I find this is causing me to pray constantly. (laughs) Dear Jesus, help us make it through prom here on this whole situation. As we pray to our God and Father about you, we think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, and the enduring hope you have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in case you think the life of faith is just believing in your heart, please note that work and deeds become involved. Verse 4, we know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and has chosen you to be his own people. For when we brought you the good news, it was not only words, but also with power. Okay, this is interesting. So the good news, the gospel, is not only preached with words. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true, and you know of our concern for you from the way we lived when we were with you. Oh yeah. The way we live communicates something. People don't just listen to what we say. They watch what we do. They get the message from how we live. So, you receive the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. Okay, we're going to need to talk about the role of suffering. But I want to go deeper into that next week. So just... Put that on hold for a sec, the idea of suffering, okay? In this way, you imitated both us and the Lord. As a result, you have become an example to all the believers in Greece throughout Macedonia and Achaia. Aha! See this here? You see what this is? Viral discipleship. You imitate someone who is imitating Jesus, and then people imitate you, and so on, and so on. And the world is saved in the process. Think about this. What if people started imitating your Christian life? I just got quiet in here, really quiet. Did you notice that? Scary thought. Uh, Let me say this. It can be hard to find people that you want to imitate like their whole life. But let me give you a a bit of advice. um, Or at least what has worked for me. Um, You can find certain things about people that you want to imitate in their Christian life. Uh, be a Christian mom like this person. Uh, be kind like that person. Uh, maybe you want to be a Christian business leader like the way that guy is. Maybe you want to be bold like that woman. So when you meet other people like other Christians, like think about, I wonder what they do. Like what have they got a handle on that they do well and imitate them. Look for pieces that you can imitate. Verse 8. And now the word of the Lord is ringing out to you Uh, from you to people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia, for wherever uh, we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. Uh, We don't need to tell them about it, for they keep talking about the wonderful welcome you gave us. Let's think, okay, think about this for a second. Welcome. Everybody say welcome. Right? Someone at our church shared with me this week on their first time visiting Copper Hills, coming out of a terribly unwelcome church situation, like out of a crisis situation, took a risk, Googled, like found the church and on the internet and came, shows up, like that first day situation, someone recognized him and came over and just said, welcome, hey, welcome, brought the person to tears, had to sit down. See, we don't know what's going on in under the covers in people's lives. Remember I said, you know, just assume everybody's in the fight of their life because they might be on some level. 
and feeling welcoming. Same thing happened in men's ministry. Um, same gentleman turned up at the men's ministry and Virgil, where's my buddy Virgil, the greeter? Virgil just sees a new guy, goes over there and says, welcome. Same effect, the importance of being welcome. It's so, do you guys find this? I do, I'm guilty of this. Like, I'm so happy to see people like that I know in church. I want to see my fr- our, our friends because we're often not together like throughout the week, right? Our jobs and stuff. You can just talk to your friends. How important to see strength. You see someone you don't know? See someone you don't know? Here's a new policy. See someone you don't know? Move towards and say, hey, welcome. And when they say, hey, I met you last week, just go, okay, that's fine. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, so what's, where, where are we at here? Wonderful, the wonderful welcome you gave us and how you turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. And they speak of how you are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. Paul is super happy about what's happening with the Thessalonians. Super happy. Why? Because he's the original church planter. He is planting these churches that are designed to go and spread the good news virally across the whole world by living it out in the midst of people. And it's working. It's taking hold, it's taking root, it's working. The dream is alive. Now, as Brad mentioned last week in his introduction, this first letter marks a profound change in the trajectory of the people of God in history. Remember for a second where we are in redemptive history at this point in the Bible, okay? Creation, fall, a secret plan to save the world. God gets a person. By the way, this is God's solution for um, a lot of stuff. Keep this in mind because it will apply to you. He gets a person, okay? In some, you might be the person for something, like he gets a person. In this case, Abraham makes a bunch of people out of that person, blesses them so they can bless the whole world in turn. The whole thing gets off track. God's people end up enslaved. So God gets a person, uh, Moses, set my people free, gives them the Ten Commandments. They can't do it. Uh, sends prophets to turn, or gets a person like prophets, sends them to turn it around. Um, they don't like it. They kill the prophets, uh, so God turns up in, per- in person as Jesus. Uh, they kill him too, but it doesn't work. In fact, killing him paves the way for all of us to become beings just like him. The seed dies and goes into the earth and becomes a whole crop of Jesus' people, which organizes itself into discipleship communities called churches that try to actually live out what Jesus taught and invite others into that kind of life so that everyone in the whole world gets included in the kingdom of God. And so, this idea of the people of God being potentially everyone is a really big change for what's been going on so far. We now have ancient Jews and pagans and togas coming together in church and trying to work this out. Now, how do you think that went over with uh, the traditional people of God, the Jews, who had a long-standing, exclusive relationship with God and deeply treasured traditions? Not that great. Some made the leap. Others didn't. Uh, I know you saw this last week. I want to show it to you again. Acts 17, verses 5 and 6. But some of the Jews were jealous, so they gathered some troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. They attacked the home of Jason, searching for Paul. This is in in, uh, Thessalonica. They attacked the home of Jason, 
uh, searching for Paul and Silas so they could drag them out to the crowd. Not finding them there, they dragged out Jason and some of the other believers instead and took them before the city council. Okay, a little piece of advice. If you don't like how things are changing at church and you feel the urge to gather some troublemakers, form a mob, start a riot, maybe just resist that. If you disagree with someone or some people and you find yourself attacking their homes, dragging them into the street, but you don't find them, so you just drag whoever you can find there into the mob, maybe stop for a second, take a warm bath, do some aromatherapy, think what would Jesus do here, okay? Here's my thing, the church has typically, uh, I could even expand that, the people of God even have not been that great in dealing with change. Start a riot, get a mob. Not the best. So this morning we need to talk about change. I'm going to illustrate this first and then draw a big parallel to the church. Are you ready? Okay, here's the illustration. We're just coming off Memorial Day, so it's a, so it's a great moment to talk about the military for a second. Is that all right? I'm going to go military here. Uh, you probably already know that the best and most effective military force that the world has ever known, you probably know what that is. I'm speaking, of course, about the Roman legions. Conquered the known world, created an empire, the Roman Empire. Instrumental to that. A Roman legion was an incredible innovation in warfare. They had that short sword, big shield, um, a throwing spear called the pilum that had a, you ever seen that long metal point, soft metal that would bend, so when it hit something, it would bend, whether it was a person on the ground, so they couldn't throw it back. And here's what would happen. They had... Um, and you know, in a, in a Roman uh, phalanx, like they'd have four to eight rows of guys with the big shields overlapping, looking after the guy next to you, little stabbing swords. And here's what would happen. The centurion, at, you'd fight as hard as you could, the centurion would blow a whistle and he had a big, that big, uh, you know, free thing on his hat and you could kind of see it and uh, he would turn his head and here's what would happen. Uh, the guys behind you would turn their shields sideways, you would step back, the guys behind you would step forward. Fresh guys, you find you go to the back of the line, get bandaged up, get some water, get another sword, get another thing, get back in line. You could, this, this actually changed uh, military careers because now you could have a career in the military. You could actually survive it, these wars. It was an incredibly uh, effective way to fight. Uh, conquered the known world. In fact, for 400 years, no Roman legion lost a battle except to another Roman legion. This is the way to do it. This is the way to fight. However, you may have noticed that America is not sending Roman legions into battle. It would be absurd. Why? Because the world has changed, right? The military has had to change and adapt. It's kind of interesting. I'm a little bit of a historian, a little bit of a strategist guy, a little bit military history. How did that change happen? What made the military change? Do you know what marked the end of the Roman legions? This, this kind of military unit that's never been beaten. What, what changed? I'll give you a hint. It wasn't gunpowder. Do you know what happened? Politicians in Rome started fighting with each other and they called their legions back to the center, to the Rome. And so at the edge of the Roman Empire, the legions are gone. The Pax Romana that kept peace out at the edge uh, left and people were like, we're on our own. What are we going to do? This is catastrophe. Like Rome's not here keeping the peace. 
Uh, then someone uh, brings this thing from France called a stirrup. Attaches to the saddle of your horse. So now you can kind of stand up and get some leverage. And you can fight from horseback. But then you have to make the swords longer, hence the long swords. And you can put some plate mail on and you get a shield and a lance. Now what do you got? Heavy cavalry. Knights of the round table. Where'd that happen? Britain. The edge of the empire, not the center. The center could still fight with Roman legions the old way. The edge of the empire had to innovate. It's at the edges where change hits, where we're forced to innovate, to think different. Necessity is the mother of invention. Do you know what I like about Arizona? One of the many things I like about Arizona? It's on the edge of America. We live on the edge. It's on the edge of another country. And another different country called California lives right on that edge. Um, that was not in my notes. That was a spontaneous right there. Best laugh of the thing, spontaneous. Interesting thing happened at the edges. Anyone, uh, anyone gone hunting? I've hunted a little bit like in Canada in the Rockies, right? Yeah, you guys are like, um, you sit up on the edge there where the, the edge effect, where the woods end and the fields kind of begin and things come out, get on a cut line. Anyone fish? You know, bass fishing. Okay, so you want to get like, there's the weeds kind of end there. I'm just going to cast that out and bring that right along the edge because there's things, interesting things happen at the edges. We live in the desert. There's a sense of self-reliance. We can't always do it the way it's been done. We don't live in the Bible Belt. We can't afford to do ministry and do church the way it's always been done. This is how I feel here. Um, we've got this incredible mix, uh, interesting mix of people in Arizona. Um, lots not from here. I met a guy today who's actually from here. Out in the plaza. He's like, he grew up here. Everything. Um, Arizona's like a crossroads. Like Thessalonica. This mix. Something different. It forces us to think different. Because we live on the edge. Okay, here's the leap. You ready? Here's the application. I'm going to make the leap. The military has to change and adapt to complete its mission because the world has changed. Similarly, the church has to change and adapt to complete its mission because the world has changed. Do you agree with that? You wouldn't send the military out with 100-year-old weapons and tactics, would you? So let's, let's not send the church out with 100-year-old strategies and tactics. The church has to change and adapt to fulfill her mission in the world. And by the way, I could give another sermon, which I won't give here, about the incredible way the church has actually successfully adapted to its mission field. Now, let me stop here and assure you, we are not planning any giant change initiatives at Copper Hills. It's not like all going to change. That's not where I'm going with this. I can tell you the big change. Here's the big change. You ready? We had two services. We're going to have three. I know. And it's going to be the same as the other two. You want to do it different on Saturday night? No, same. And, but here's, okay, and coffee shop. That's going to be good too. Okay, so we're not planning any dramatic changes, but here's what I know. God is the God of the New Testament that describes the new life that makes us a new creation and gives us a new commandment. He tends to do new things. We can't always do it the old way. We have to be ready for when something changes because historically, the church has not been so great with change. You know this. So, uh, even small stuff 
like changing the music can cause a complete meltdown. Have you noticed this? I saw this Lutheran news bulletin. Hundreds hospitalized after new hymn introduced in church. (laughs) Huron, South Dakota, hundreds were hospitalized and scores more traumatized for life in the wake of a disastrous hymn rollout last Sunday. Uh, Recklessly acting in a way contrary to all Lutheran sensibilities, Pastor Norman Schroeder inserted the previously unsung hymn through Jesus' blood and merit into a church service. Quote, I remember paging to him 372 and thinking that it looked unfamiliar, said helpless victim Dolores Hamilton from her hospital bed. My heart started pounding. My vision narrowed. As we started singing, my hands trembled uncontrollably. I felt lightheaded. I don't even think I made it through the first stanza before I passed out. First responders were overwhelmed by the chaotic scene. Ambulances struggled to make their way through the terrified mob streaming through the church parking lot. Inside the sanctuary, hundreds were incapacitated. Many still frozen with their hands clutched over their ears in a vain attempt to shut out the unfamiliar tune. The few conscious congregants were in such a weakened state that they were unable to assist the more gravely injured Lutherans. We haven't seen such a tragedy in the Reformed Church since the Reformed Church tried to introduce a contemporary version of the Song of Simeon, lamented local police chief Richard Johnson. Thank goodness there was no loss of life if we hadn't tasered the organist the death toll would have been truly catastrophic this is of course uh, satire but you get the point uh, by the way do you know that hymns were not invented by the church right so they were introduced in the fourth century by a, a very influential bishop by the name of ambrose uh, who introduced community hymn singing uh, in the church the problem was uh, and did you know there was enormous resistance to their introduction? The problem was the hymns were made up of metrical stanzas that was unlike biblical poetry. Even worse, secular hymns were sometimes sung while marching. Many of these hymns took songs written uh, by heretics using the same meter but rewriting the words. Outrageous! Marching songs in church! How worldly can we get? You have to bet there was this one guy who was like, I'll tell you what, we are going to be singing hymns in church over my dead body. (laughs) Right? Resistance to change. Why is that? I was talking to a retired Marine at the back of the church last week. I was curious because we don't have Marines in Canada. Don't have that branch of the military. Uh, And he said, good fighters in Canada. I fought with them in the Middle East. Um... The Marines have a motto. Do you know what it is? That's right. I heard over here. What was it? Semper Fi. Do you know what it means? Always faithful. Did you know that the uh, church has a similar model? Model? Did you know that? Semper Reformanda. It means always being reformed. There wasn't just one big reformation where Martin Luther figured out the medieval church was off track, nailed his theses to the door and said, you know, we're going to turn, we're going to go hard left here. There's actually this constant course correcting. Actually, the whole phrase is, you know, for Latin fans in the audience, um, in the congregation, the whole phrase is semper reformanda secundum verbum, verbum dei. Always reforming according to the word of God. Always being reformed, actually. It's in the passive, by the word of God. So, We need to study the scriptures. We need to study the world of our mission. We need to adapt ourselves accordingly. This is a great topic for discussion discussion in your life groups, for the ones that are still meeting in the summer. Um, We're going to send these kinds of questions out to your leaders. We're going to try this. Number one, do you like change or resist change? Why? 
Number two, do you tend to like change or resist change at church? What kind of changes do you resist? What kind of changes do you think are needed? Why? How would you describe the mission of the church? The mission of Copper Hills Church. How could the mission be used to decide what to change and what not to change? It's going to be some interesting discussions. You don't even have to be at Life Group. You can discuss this with your friends or in the car on the way home. Let me end with this. The year was 1961. It was the beginning of the 60s, a turbulent time, including some of the biggest military challenges America would ever face. Uh, the next year, the following year, would be the closest the United States would ever come to a full-scale nuclear war with Russia. Uh, unfortunately, many of the generals at the time, who had all learned their trade in World War II, uh, didn't, think any, didn't think anything had changed. They were convinced that all wars were the same, and they knew how to fight them because they are the experts. This thing happens where you get training for the last war, not the next one. And the next war was already brewing, a completely different kind of war, in a small, faraway country called Vietnam. However, America had elected a dynamic and charismatic young president by the name of John F. Kennedy. And uh, one of JFK's key advisors in the State Department, a guy by the name of Roger Hillsman, also learned some things in World War II, but different things. He served in the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, the original the original American espionage agency that would eventually morph into the CIA after the war. After the war. Hillsman was convinced that the world had changed. Uh, as it turns out, the new president was a voracious reader, so Hillsman gave him some books to read about insurgency and guerrilla warfare. Books by Che Guevara, Mao Zedong, and yes, a certain general named Vo Nguyen Zap from, you guessed it, Vietnam the president becomes convinced that the threat to America was not going to be a big frontal assault tank battle in Europe. The danger to the United States was subtle, clandestine, and covert. Here's a conclusion JFK comes to, and I quote, a whole new kind of strategy, a wholly different kind of force, and therefore a wholly different kind of military training is called for. Do you know what came out of that statement? A hundred men will test this day, but only three win the... Do you know what? The, the Green Beret. Thank you. The Green Berets uh, emerge out of JFK's revelation that the world has changed. And not just the Green Berets, but sort of um, special forces in America. That's why JFK is known as the father of U.S. special forces. And you can visit the U.S. Army John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and School at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. So here it is. Here's my concluding statement. Are you ready? I believe the world has changed and we are being invited to become a kind of spiritual special forces. Of course, I'm not talking about guns and tanks. 2 Corinthians 10, 5 and 4 says, we use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture the rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. I'll tell you what. There's like a lot of churches in Peoria. Some of you had to drive by three of them to get here. Uh, I haven't been to all of them, but it seems like the main difference is often style. Style and worship, style of preaching. And you can pick your church based on your personal preferences. 
sometimes I feel like with all of our consumer choice of churches, it's not always clear to me that we're making disciples and reaching our world. Because the world has changed. It could be that the church might need to take JFK's advice. Invent new strategies. Become a different kind of force. Do a different kind of training. As Christians, we might need to think different about church. Go deeper on discipleship. Train harder in prayer and the word. You might have to go to spiritual boot camp. You might get in the best spiritual shape of your life. Your spiritual strength and endurance might increase. You might develop some special skills and use those skills as part of a highly trained team and play your role in the biggest mission the world has ever known. There is only one person I know who can put together a force like that, and it's Jesus. Let's pray and ask him to lead us. Lord Jesus, we humble ourselves before you and confess you as our great leader. We thank you for your mission in the world. Lord, we know the world has changed. We are not afraid of that. We know you know what you've called us to do. Teach us, Lord. Be our great commander. Train us in new ways, in new skills. Show us the strategies and the tactics, the discipleship approaches that we need to learn to reach our world. Give us courage in the face of our changing world to trust you. Give us courage in the face of even the changes that happen in our churches to trust you. And may we, all of us, look to you as our great leader who can train us and send us in mission. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.